Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Hello, you're welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnson. On today's show, I'm going to be joined again by more international and Irish experts who drive and analyse our world of business and politics. And on today's show, they've brought us from French roast to frothy frappuccinos. But now Starbucks, the company who turned a plain old cup of joe into a lifestyle experience, could be up for sale. I'll be joined from The Times in London by journalist Saba Meddings to hear what's happening in the corporate coffee HQ. And as business here in Ireland prepares for budget 2023, the Irish-based multinationals have their sights set a little further ahead and they're looking at the background negotiations that are ongoing about a new global tax deal that's set to change the landscape for their business, not just here in Ireland, but all around the world. Currency journalist Thomas Hubert will be joining me here in studio to decipher it all. And finally, Brexit raised the prospect of a border poll on a united Ireland. There's, of course, many, many complex political hurdles to be negotiated before that vote could ever take place. But nonetheless, it does raise a question about the economic cost or benefit of a united Ireland. So today I'll be examining how much the unification of Germany costs their exchequer and ask if there's lessons that we can learn from their experience. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at stockNT. But first up today, you may be mulling over a cup of coffee right now, because according to a recent survey, Dublin is the second most coffee obsessed capital in the world. But where we buy our coffee may be about to change. Starbucks have rightly gotten the credit for bringing fresh ground coffee to the masses. But recently they've seen a major shift in consumer behaviour because, as the Sunday Times revealed, the parent company in Seattle may be sounding out buyers for a sale. Here to spill the beans on what's going on at HQ is Sabah Meddings. Sabah, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us today on Newstalk. Lovely to speak to you. Thank you. Now, before we get into what's happening now, you might just take us back a little bit. Um, Starbucks really were game changers, weren't they, when it came to delivering coffee to the masses? How did they become the Coca-Cola of coffee? What happened was you saw before Starbucks bounded onto the scene, coffee may have been served in a cafe, but it was probably a, a drip coffee and wasn't very exciting. There were no sort of cappuccinos or flat whites back then. And they arrived in the UK about 25 years ago. Um, began opening stores and obviously it was kind of quite an exciting new um, brand. You could go and sort of hang out in a coffee shop. You've got this sort of um, grow of sort of coffee shop culture rather than going to the pub or um, or a regular cafe. You could go and hang out in a coffee shop and have something a lot more interesting. You might be able to get a cake as well. Um, I think if we all look back to friends, you know, when they're sort of hanging out, it was sort of that real um, new new area, new place that people could go and socialise. Yeah, they kind of created a whole lifestyle around the coffee kind of culture. Um, But as they drove up their product, they also uh, helped to bring others into the market and their rivals have certainly upped the game and that's had an effect on them. How have they held their market position so well uh, since they started? I think, I mean, Starbucks has always been really good at innovation. Um, If you think about drinks, such as the sort of cult following that the pumpkin spice latte gets each year when it um, when it's introduced in the autumn, or the drive-through uh, model that we're seeing more and more of, um, certainly across America and in the UK, um, they're sort of pushing into towns and cities that didn't have whether it's a drive-through before, you know, maybe there was only a Costa in town. They've always been quite good at sort of bringing new products. 
Although I have to say, I mean, they are under a lot of competition um, at the moment. If you look at uh, in the in, in the UK brands such as Greggs, uh, which are investing a lot in coffee machines, or even McDonald's with McCafe, you can get a coffee for um, sort of a fraction of the price of a Starbucks at McDonald's, for example. So they they're definitely under a lot of competition. And at the same time, as they've introduced people to whether it's the cappuccino or a latte with a sort of a caramel um, shot, there's a you know people sort of seized hold of this new um, way of drinking coffee and expanded on that. So people may have their coffee machines at home now, or you've certainly seen uh, thousands of independent coffee shops springing up and people are really getting um, become coffee connoisseurs, thinking about it in terms of the different types of beans or, or way of brewing coffee that you may have with wine. So um, certainly as Starbucks has sort of pushed out, so sort of following up behind them, we've got lots of these little boutique um, operators that are now becoming quite substantial chains and people are looking for maybe something a little bit um, differential and Starbucks maybe is becoming a little bit um, mm. homogenous. Yeah. It's not... You don't get that independent coffee feel. No, you know, and the, the other thing is, Sabah, that sometimes when Starbucks can can emote a really strong feeling um, from people. I have friends who absolutely will not go into it. Um, in at a principle, they've almost become the anti place for some people. And as you mentioned, there a lot of people now want to try and support. Um, independent and more nimble, smaller sort of cafes or even, you know, you've seen a lot spring up in COVID. These, you know, these independent or the local small little coffee bars that, that pop up. And uh, I don't know whether it's happening in the UK, but certainly in Ireland, small little businesses in remodeled trailers and vans have become quite the chic stop, for, you know, along the roadside. And Starbucks, I mean, how are they dealing with that? Are they changing their model to try and, you know, tap into it or are they just going a completely direct, different direction? I think um, a bit of both. There is a different direction. As I said previously, they're also looking at drive throughs um, That's less reliant on having high footfall in city centres, which traditionally would have been um, the way Starbucks got most of its customers, whether it's people on their commute in the morning, getting on the tube or driving into work. Now there's sort of a push into drive throughs but certainly they are under a lot of um, pressure and there is a lot of competition because people, I do feel, like to have a relationship with the brand that they're buying there, um, whether it's um, food from, coffee from, and if you if there's an independent shop on the corner that you might want to support, certainly um, over a big corporate that has faced questions over its tax affairs. Um, so I do feel that, you know, pushing slightly away from the big faceless corporate into sort of thinking about buying something from a local brand um, might be more appealing. Although, you know, Starbucks now, it does have the um, sort of the, the, the cash, the money to invest in digital. So you can certainly get Starbucks on these um, delivery apps now, whether it's Uber Eats, Just Eat, uh, mm. Delivery. So they are sort of trying to innovate. And again, you know, don't discount the drive-through model, which is certainly um, really, really pushing out into the UK. Yeah, I have to say, I found my. It's hard to get my head around that drive-through notion, like because part of the appeal of of having a cup of coffee is going in, maybe having a chit chat with somebody behind the counter, sitting down, enjoying the coffee. And recently, on a trip to to Italy, I noticed that there were very few people walking or marching around with huge buckets of coffee. They're actually sitting there enjoying the experience. So I'm not sure whether. 
um, I'd I'd really think that the drive through would, would would take off, but maybe that's just me. But certainly, the hollowing out of city centres uh, has been, I suppose, a big change for lots of businesses. But if you're talking about Starbucks and a lot of big chains who would depend on professional um, workforces to kind of support their business. That has to be a huge game game changer as people now work from home much, much more. You think COVID has had a massive effect on them? Huge impact and not just them on, on all the, um, you know, whether it's pubs, restaurants, but, all, you know, but definitely Starbucks as well on its rivals. You know, people are only coming into work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday or um, working slightly different hours or, even, you know, some people have gone fully remote, even if they're only losing 10, 20, 30% of footfall, that's going to be a huge difference to a city centre um, coffee shop with, don't forget, high rents, um, staff costs have gone up, everything's more expensive, energy, um, raw materials, milk's more expensive. So they really do need to push in the footfall. And if even there's a sort of a, a slight drop-off in the number of people coming in for their morning coffee, then that's going to have a huge impact. Mm. But at the same time, rivals, um, as well as Starbucks, are innovating um, here in London, where I um, am based, I kind of sitting in my office uh, in London Bridge, and I think there's a three pret a within a five-minute walk, and they've they've launched a coffee subscription. So for twenty-five pounds a month, you can have unlimited coffee. Um, and you know, there's a, there's two Starbucks close by, and um, they certainly they do they do obviously have loyalty schemes and things like that. But there's a huge amount of competition now um, from other operators, a couple of Cafe Nero's as well. So. All of those chains will be competing for the same or fewer number of um, commuters in the morning than there would have been previously, and um, you know that that is why they are sort of looking into sort of that, you know moving in out of town retail parks or other other formats. But really, it's it's, it's very difficult, and there has been you know we have seen closures of some um, of all the, you know all the coffee shops in London because they just they found enough people around to um, buy the coffee, and also people are looking to cut back a bit. Um, you know, are you going to maybe have your coffee at home? Have you invested in a new uh, coffee machine over lockdown that you can now make yourself mm. a really nice coffee at home? So maybe you might cut back on one or two of your um, coffees each um, each week. So it's all, it's all going to have an impact. Yeah. If you're just uh, tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Sabah Meddings about the potential sale of Starbucks and moving on to that, Sabah, why in this context um, might they want to sell now? What is actually happening? What are you hearing? Well, Starbucks is in a bit of a bind. Um, in the US, they've got pressure from staff in terms of staff not feeling very safe at work. There's sort of a real um, unionisation effort there. Um, they parachuted back in Howard Schultz, who's responsible for sort of really uh, bringing Starbucks to the masses. He's, he's the man behind the brand um, back in the 1980s. So he's come in and sort of taking stock. Um, and the UK is actually a bit of an anom- anomaly for Starbucks. Most of its markets are fully operated by franchisees. The UK is quite different. They do have a lot of franchisees, but um, 300, 30% of their stores, so about 300, are actually owned by the company. I should stress, they've said there's not a formal uh, sales process, but my understanding is that they have appointed advisors so that have canvas interest. Certainly when you put a full sales sign up, you automatically uh, slash the amount that you might get um, from any uh, any buyer. So um, my understanding is they're sort of sounding out interested parties and um, seeing if a, if a deal might materialise. But I think it's... Um, Focusing on the core, they want to focus on the US, brought that out. You know, outside of COVID, China is a huge market for them. 
um, and it sort of sounds, it feels like they kind of want to um, focus on their larger markets. And um, there was certainly no mention or not much mention of the UK in their most recent um, trading update. It doesn't feel like it's um, really uh, core cool at the moment. And who would be likely um, to buy uh, Starbucks? Would it be one of their main competitors, somebody completely new coming into the market? Could be um, a franchisee could, could, could buy it. Could be a um, you know we saw with Coca with Costa Coffee, uh, which was previously owned by Whitbread, that was bought by Coca Cola. Mm. So that was a real strategic play to sort of push the Costa brand into supermarkets, into vending machines, and, um, and you know drive throughs things like that. So yeah, it could be a it could be a sort of strategic trade buyer like that. It could equally be a private equity company um, that wants to get into Starbucks. I mean, although we've talked about competition it is still a really strong brand and you know has uh, sales numbers certainly picked up um very much as we came out of uh, lockdown so there is a lot of potential in it so it, you know could be could be trade could be private equity um or a, or a franchisee so there's there are options um trouble is i mean there aren't there isn't a lot of um debt financing at the moment so it, it isn't a great time to be looking um to see if someone wants to buy your business but um i certainly think there would be interested parties yeah, interesting developments. We certainly have to watch this space. Um, Sabah, are you a, a Starbucks drinker yourself? Do you know, I actually can't remember the last time I went in. That's bad, isn't it? There is one under my office. I think I got a, lot, a flat white from there a few weeks ago. <laughs> well, we won't leave that. We won't hold that against you. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That was Sabah Meddings of the Sunday Times. Sabah, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up next, after years of defending Ireland's corporation tax rate, a new global tax plan is agreed in principle, but the devil, as always, is in the detail. And we'll be hearing about those details after the break. Last year, Ireland signed up to a global deal on corporation tax reform that will set a minimum rate of 15% for large companies. It was a landmark change in Ireland's position. Now that principle has been conceded and the details for the new global tax deal are emerging. I'm joined now by Thomas Huber from uh, The Currency, a senior correspondent there. Thomas, thank you very much for joining us. Hi, Mandy. Thomas, um, now the changes that I mentioned there uh, that that came about last year from the Irish government's position, they didn't really affect the multinational landscape that much. We've had very healthy corporation tax receipts. Just to start us off, can you just tell us how much multinationals contribute to our exchequer every year? It's very big. It's 15 billion euro last year. We're headed for probably around 20 billion this year. So it's becoming one of the main sources, it has become one of the main sources of tax for the exchequer. It's just as big as VAT at the moment. And it's only income tax by you and I, uh, normal individuals paying their PAYE tax that is now bigger than corporation tax really. So it's it's up there with the main sources of revenue for the state. And it hasn't been affected, as you said, probably as we're going to discuss because the rules have not changed yet. The principle is agreed, but nothing has changed in practice. And even when it does change, there's no sign as such that the multinationals are all going to leave the docks in Dublin or the big factories in Cork uh, at this point. There's no sign of that. Now, um, you've written a piece, a very lengthy piece about this uh, in recent weeks. And in that piece, you talk about the technical work that's been happening behind the scenes on on this um, agreement. Can you just talk us through what this document that was published by the OECD set out to do? So... The OECD has two pillars in in the agreement that was uh, made last year and that Ireland finally joined after a a bit of delay. So there's pillar one, pillar two. 
the 15% minimum tax is pillar two. It's actually the second part of the deal. And there's a lot that's been said about that. Really, it's now it's all about can countries uh, and the EU implementing it in national law. Uh, there's an agreement that everybody has to do it at their own level. So the US is trying to do it. Uh, President Biden has a budget legislation trying to get through that he's really struggling to, to have adopted by Congress. And then in the EU, there's also a lot of wranglings at EU level. The latest country to oppose that was Hungary. So that's pillar two, the 15%. There's still hope that it's going to fall into place, but it's it's very hard to actually get every country to implement it. What was more recent, and I wrote about recently on the currency, is pillar one. And that's another set of rules that is meant to move part of the tax that is currently paid in countries like Ireland by multinationals have that paid in the countries where the customers are instead. And the countries that really want that are the big market countries, the US, continental Europe, uh, to a degree Japan. They, they're the ones where, you know, big markets are where a lot of the stuff is consumed, whether it's digital Im- immaterial products and services or whether it's high value products like, for example, medicines that are made in Ireland and they want their share of the tax. That's the pure one thing that is being formalized now. So it sounds quite complicated. Uh, So we're talking about a part of the the tax coming from Ireland, um, but part of the tax coming from a country where the product is consumed. What would happen if a product is manufactured here, say um, in the pharmaceutical sector, but it's consumed all over the world? How do how do they collect the tax on, that, on something like yeah, that? Yeah, that's that's when we're getting into the weeds of the 100-page the document that was just published by the OECD a few days ago. And it, it explains really how you're going to track uh, markets. So For example, a big pharmaceutical company, as you said, has consumers around the world. So uh, the the basis of where this portion of tax is going to be reallocated is where people are using those drugs. Uh, In a lot of cases, you have American multinationals. They come to, for example, Cork to make drugs, and then they actually resell them in the U.S. So the U.S. would be entitled to have more tax than Ireland under those new rules. And that's the way they're going to, to look at it. That's easy enough in a way because... Those multinationals are used to reporting where this, their sales are made. They already know uh, when, you know, where every year in their accounts you can say it's published already. Uh, a lot of it is in the US, a portion will be in Europe, a portion will be in Asia. They, they already have that. Uh, it's less easy when it's digital stuff, mm. when it's, you know, social media, advertising, gaming, those kind of businesses. Um, you know, you don't necessarily know where uh, a customer is based or if you know it, um, it's not necessarily reported as clearly uh, at the moment. Yeah, it, it sounds like a very uh, complex challenge for them to try and kind of come up with a solution on that. And Facebook are already starting to kind of change their business model a little bit to deal with that. Can you just talk to me a little bit about what they're doing? Yeah, that's an interesting example because on Facebook, the money is coming from advertising and the advertisers pay Facebook because they're interested in their ad being seen by, say, a, a German mother of two. And they and can specifically they target exactly. directly that, that consumer. So Germany wants that tax share uh, in this case. And um, what Facebook has started to do, because they know that there is pressure on them already to share that tax revenue a bit more with the market countries, is they've said, okay, in those countries where we have a big office, we have people selling ads already. Up until now, all those ads all over Europe, for example, were actually charged from Ireland. 
and the profit was declared in Ireland and the tax was paid in Ireland. Now, when our local office is involved, we're going to declare that profit in the local country and the tax will be paid locally as well. Um, they've been doing that, in, in, for example, in France, in Italy, in, in Germany, those countries that are big on wanting that share of, of the tax. But they've only been doing that so far on the big deals, mm. you know, the big advertisers, the big kind of car companies, the ones that buy millions of advertising at a time. And the local small ads, if, you know, a, a small shop a jewelry maker, for example, goes on Facebook and just buys with a credit card a mm. couple of ads to appear here and there, even if it's in various countries, they're too small to need a salesperson to step in. So that's still automated and that's still booked in Ireland. Like the new rules are not going to work like that. They're going to really look at where the customers are located and, and tax based on that. So what are the Department of Finance saying about Pillar 1? Is there any sort of estimation at this stage about what that could cost us, even the changes that are happening now? Or is it too early? It, it, they have an estimate that's been around for over a year and they say it's going to reduce the tax take by 2 billion euro, this Pillar 1 change of rules. Now, it hasn't changed uh, for the past year. And now we have these new rules that are a lot more detailed. Um, you know, there's a bit more about not only where the tax is going to be moved to, but where it's going to be moved from. Uh, we know from the latest document that there's going to be tiers of countries that are currently acting as hubs for multinationals like Ireland. So the ones that have been capturing the most profits so far, they're going to have to give away the most tax that is to be given back to market countries. And all those new rules are really complex and they weren't there when the Department of Finance made this 2 billion euro estimate. Also, the overall tax from multinational has increased since then. So it was 2 billion of whatever the tax was at the time when the calculation was made. Now, uh, by the time the rules actually come into place, it's quite possible that the corporation tax take in Ireland will have doubled. So it will be two billion of what under the new rules? Oh, it will oh, have to change, but we don't know that yet. Yeah, so it could increase, but it could be a proportion of a of a, of a larger amount, if you like. Yes. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Thomas Huber, who is Senior Correspondent at The Currency, and we're talking about the new rules around corporation tax. Um, Thomas, you mentioned the tiers there earlier, and I know this is very complicated. I'm trying to, to, to simplify it as much as we can for listeners. But where would Ireland fall into those tiers? It will be on a company by company basis. So depending on the setup they have, uh, they will have to move their tax away from a given country. So if you look at, we talked about Facebook earlier, maybe Ireland will probably be there in their tier one countries. Uh, I don't know that for sure, but just my feeling looking at the rules is, you know, th that's really one of the countries that has been locating most of Facebook's profits outside the US ever since they've started going international. So it's likely that Ireland will have to give away more tax from Facebook than, say, another company that is only using Ireland more recently or for a smaller share of their business, like, say, IBM, for example, is only uh, using Ireland for some business, but it's big international headquarters and, and corporate reporting is actually in the Netherlands. So Ireland will probably lose some tax out of a company like that, but the Netherlands maybe a bit more because that's where everything is centralized for tax at the moment. So all that will have to be worked out. And that's when we, we don't know yet what the impact will be because of that uncertainty. And some companies won't be affected by these rules because there are thresholds, of course, that corporations have to hit. Can you take us through some of those and some of the companies who don't fall within this at all? Well, actually, I've just mentioned IBM. That's one example that if you just look at the past year's account, they wouldn't be affected because the rules only kick in after a profit of 10% of turnover. 
And some of those companies, uh, even though they're very big, they're not actually that profitable uh, on a net profit basis. And that's one thing I wanted to ask you about. Is this all about managing the profit margins then? It could be. Uh, well, you see some companies that have uh, actually low enough profitability, even, either because they're in growth mode. So we've got some multinationals coming to Ireland. For example, Airbnb, it's nowhere near the profitability levels that are, is required yet to fall under those new rules. Uh, you've got other companies that maybe at, at group level, they're not uh, profitable enough to fall under the new rules, but some segments will be. So if you think of Amazon, really huge company worldwide, um, and actually not with a big HQ in Ireland, like the whole retail uh, system in, in Amazon in Europe is based in Luxembourg. So And it's not a 10% profit margin because at the end of the day, it's retail. So it's not that profitable, even though as a company, it's so huge that it it's makes just a high big volume. profit. Yeah, so it's but then within more. Amazon, you've got Another segment that's uh, AWS, the cloud hosting service of Amazon, that's really profitable and that's really big in Ireland, more and, and more. And so where will the profits from that cloud service fit or sit? Or In that case, it could fall under the new rules because the cloud segment of Amazon itself is big enough to be in the 20 billion euro and 10% profit margin okay. uh, you know, threshold from which it applies. So then in that case, yeah, the the, the, port, the growing business of Amazon uh, Web Services, the cloud business that is built, based in Dublin with more and more engineers and data centers, then it, it could have to move a bit of its tax away from Ireland as times go by. I ask you that question because you'll remember, as I do, uh, for many years, the row around corporation tax at European level was a lot about transparency and Ireland had a very transparent rate, even though it was low, you could see fully uh, how it was applied, where other member states sort of had different um, derogations, if you like. Does this present another, you know, complex layer where, you know, you can't actually see the full picture? It. Actually, I think it would make uh, things more transparent uh, because of the obligation to move tax around. Uh, you would actually have to disclose how much tax is paid. And uh, there's actually a separate EU directive in the work for that that would oblige every um, multinational to say in which EU country they're paying tax and, and how much because they don't really at the moment. If you look at Apple, which is probably the largest taxpayer in Ireland. I say probably because we don't know that, because all the tax reported in, in Ireland by Apple is actually lumped together with the tax it reports anywhere else outside the US in okay, the world. So, so how much is exactly Ireland? We don't know most of it, but that would become maybe clearer under the, the new OECD rules. Uh, but a lot of it will be actually clearer to the authorities because they'll have to report to revenue what they're doing and where they're moving the tax. It wouldn't necessarily be in published accounts for you and me to see. Okay, so although it's complicated while we're working it out, it ultimately will deliver more transparency. Thomas, what's the status of this paper? What happens next and when should businesses, corporations start kind of feeling the effects of it? The latest from the OECD, um, when they released this paper just uh, in July, they said it would be uh, 2023 before it's actually set in stone and it will take the form of a, a treaty. It's essentially, uh, they call it a multilateral convention. So the countries that are taking part, the 137 countries in these talks, uh, which is nearly every country in the world, will have to uh, sign and then ratify this uh, treaty and it would in that case come into force in 2024 and then the other side pillar 2 the 15% minimum rate it all depends as we said earlier on the national legislation being process. passed so between the two 
really 2024 for the whole package to come into force is the earliest we're looking at at the moment. It used to be 2023 was the target. Now it's been pushed back a year, as as you would expect for something as complicated as that. But you also hear voices saying maybe it will be later, maybe it won't happen in the format that is now proposed because there is still a level of position. So it's still possible that we'll actually fail and have to go back to the, the drawing board. And if those Pillar 2 pieces didn't get through the legislative process in the US and the EU, could Pillar 1 still exist in isolation on its own? Technically it could. Like There's nobody stopping countries from ratifying a treaty on that side if they fail to do the, the rest. But at the same time, politically, it seems very difficult. A lot of countries, including at EU level, they've been using their argument to slow down the process, saying, oh, we don't want one without the other because we we are favoured by one but not the other, or those kind of situations. They say it's the whole thing or nothing, and that's been used also as, as a tactic to delay the, the process shocking that somebody would use a tactic like that. Um, Can I just ask you finally, Thomas, in your view these proposals, um, ultimately do you think they'll affect our relationship in Ireland with multinationals where they start to look at Ireland as a destination for locating in a different way? I'm not sure it would change things fundamentally um, because really on the one hand, 15% it might be a bit higher than we're at in Ireland at the moment, but it's still lower than a lot of other countries. So, you know, if you're coming to Ireland, paying 15% tax is still a lot more than 30% in a lot of the big continental EU countries, even though they have derogations, as you said, and all that. Then the, the bit about sharing the tax a bit more between uh, a hub country and the market countries. And in a lot of those cases, uh, you know, multinationals are still happy to have a big central location where they do a lot of remote business, a lot of manufacturing of pharmaceuticals, for example, and they're not going to move, say, um, you know, drug making uh, from a big efficient factory in Cork to a lot of small factories in other countries just for tax reasons. It It wouldn't make make business sense. sense. So they're still going to look for big hubs. And as a, you know, an English speaking country, if you want to have a, a hub in the EU as a US multinational, and you've got a 15% tax that is quite attractive, even though it's a bit higher than 12 and a half. I don't think you're going to move necessarily away. It will be more competitive, especially with Eastern Europe, countries like Poland, in IT, in those, even in pharmaceutical as well, uh, are getting very competitive. So it will be more of a fight, but I don't think Ireland will be out of the race by any means. Yeah, maybe not on the corporation tax front, but issues like housing, energy provisions it's and all those will feed into now. Yeah. Much bigger now. Well, it's a very complicated and lengthy process, which we're very glad to have you here, Thomas, to decipher for us. That's Thomas Hubert, Senior Correspondent at The Currency. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Mandy. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up next, talks of a border poll have increased and the economic reunification of Ireland will certainly form part of that debate. What can we learn from the reunification of Germany? Find out after the break. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, Brexit raised the prospect of a border poll on a united Ireland, but there are, of course, many, many complex political hurdles that have to be negotiated before any vote like that could take place. Nonetheless, it has raised the question about the economic cost or indeed the economic benefit of a united Ireland. We're joined now by DCU Professor John Doyle and on the line by Senator Mark Daly, who is Cahirlach of Shannon Aaron, to discuss what, if any, lessons we might learn from the reunification of Germany from an economic perspective. You're both very welcome, gentlemen. Thank you for joining us today. That's so, Glad to be here. Thank you. 
John, I might start off with you. Uh, United Ireland, much of the discussion uh, to this point has always centred on the issue of North subvention. That's the annual subsidy that uh, it receives from the UK and what it gets in terms of covering the exchequer costs there. Your colleague, uh, Edgar Morganrath and John Fitzgerald have often argued that if the Republic were to take on uh, the cash transfer of uh, that subvention, it would trigger a financial shock. Do you concur with that, John? Um, no, I don't. And a piece of work I did last year for Doral Irish Academy, um, for the first time did a peer-reviewed piece of research which broke down the sort of 10 billion headline figure that's generally used for the British subvention in Northern Ireland, um, which hadn't been sort of really unpicked before in a detailed way. The figures aren't readily available. They're available with a bit of work. Um, and by my estimate of that, it's actually 9.4 billion, even allowing for some rounding up. It's, it's not intended to be a calculation of what United Ireland must cost. It's a statistical calculation for the British state. Um, I mean, in brief, it's the tax collected in Northern Ireland and the money spent in Northern mm-hmm. Ireland but also Northern Ireland's share of centrally spent UK expenditure, often estimated. Um, I suppose in brief, my estimate is that somewhere between sort of two to three billion is what would actually transfer on day one of United Ireland before any other policy changes in terms of tax welfare or or other uh, expenditure up or down. Mm. Um, So it's a much more manageable figure um, and really is, is not so large that we can't think about how you would raise that amount of money in a rejuvenated economy. And Senator, just to bring you in here, I know you've done quite a bit of work and research in this area yourself. The subvention argument tends to view Northern Ireland as a sort of deadweight, and I don't mean to be demeaning in that uh, terminology, but it fails to assume any upside from kind of pooling our resources north and south. What have you found? Yeah, I worked with a senior economist at the IMF on the Germany desk during German reunification, a a guy named Gunther Thurman, and he analysed that subvention and the possibilities uh, that would spring from reunification. And really, you know, it shows much what John has found out is that the subvention figure wouldn't be uh, the, the nearly 10 billion that people talk about. It would be much less included in the in the figure often talked about is Northern Ireland's share of British military nuclear spending, like nuclear submarines, um, their their foreign department of foreign affairs and others. So clearly we wouldn't be taking over those costs. But, you know, what Gunther Thurman did in his report that I worked with him on, he analysed the breakdown. But he also said clearly in the report, he said, look, Germany has reunification for over 30 years. And they still can't agree on the cost, he said, but ultimately it's a political decision, not an economic decision. And there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from Germany in the mistakes that they made. And uh, Bismarck, who was the chancellor who brought Germany together in the the 1800s, uh, he uh, said, and it's a great quote, he said, the poor person learns from his own mistake, the rich person learns from other people's mistakes. Mm. Um, So what we need to do is learn not only from what happened in German reunification, but also look at what happened in 2004 in Cyprus when they had a reunification referendum and it failed to pass. Mm. And we need to understand why did it fail to pass and, and similarly with, with Scottish independence referendum, learn lessons there as well. John, Germans' reunification in the 90s is obviously a standout process, but you know it's questionable to ask how much of that template could provide any kind of um, guidance for us because the scale and the size is just not comparable like 
the Republic is nothing like West Germany in terms of industry and economic strength. The North's economy uh, here doesn't have the challenges that East Germany had. Also, there was huge political support for the project in Germany. The same really can't be said here. So what do you think we can take to learn from their process? Yeah, I mean, the Northern Ireland economy is very weak. Every serious economic analysis talks about the weakness of their private sector in particular, but nobody says it's East Germany. I mean, mm. the standard of living in East Germany was probably something around 25-30% of the West. Um, recently, the work by the SRI would suggest that you know, wage levels in Northern Ireland, when you take into account lower housing costs, lower costs to live in, they're probably about 12-15% below the South. You know, so the gap is not massive for those in work, it's much bigger. Pensions are, are probably less than half the are in the South and other sort of social welfare payments. So there are gaps, um, but they're not devastating gaps. There's nothing on the scale of the transformation of the former communist uh, economy. Um, and the way they did that, you know, both sort of immediately and quickly for, for political reasons. Um, but the upside, you know, in terms of the potential of Northern Ireland, one, I mean, there's no reason why the Belfast region, with a population of almost 600,000 people, is far weaker economically than Cork or mm. Limerick. Um, you know, that's to do with its peripheral connection to the UK economy, the, the highly centralised nature of the UK economy these days in terms of financial services in London. You know, the fact that really no part of the UK, apart from the South East and East, technically runs a surplus if you use the same criteria by which they judge Northern Ireland. Um, foreign direct investment in Northern Ireland is about one-fifth you know, pro rata of what it is in the Republic. Tourism numbers are less than a fifth of what they are. In the context of United Ireland, I mean, it's, it's, if you reverse the decision, by what credible analysis would you say that tourism in Derry would remain so far below Donegal mm. if there wasn't the bureaucratic obstacles to promoting it? Why would somebody not locate in Belfast where rents are about 40% what they are in Dublin if it wasn't for the uncertainty caused by collapsing executives' protocols, not knowing what's going to happen next year, preventing people making a long-term investment? So I mean, not only is there every reason to believe the economy of Northern Ireland could reflect at least average levels in the south of Ireland over a reasonably modest transition. And for me, I think it's, it's hard to think of a reason why they wouldn't. You know, there's nothing intrinsic. And it was the most industrialised part at partition. It represented probably 80% of Irish GDP at the time of partition. But also the long legacy, both before and after the conflict, of lack of investment yeah. and lack of appropriate public policy. Um, so I think there's an upside in terms of you know, the congestion in Dublin, the, the lack of uh, labour and skill supply in so many sectors. You know, Northern Ireland is a good complement for the southern economy at the moment. Yeah, Senator, what, what do you say about that point? There's no real bespoke policies in place that are designed to fit with the interests of the North. Um, so they're in part of a franchise that doesn't actually fit them. A prime example of this is obviously Brexit. Um, the, taking the North out of the EU against the democratic wishes of the people. Is the political landscape in the UK essentially holding back the North's economic possibilities? Well, I suppose that's made clear by if you analyse where the Republic is at this stage, 100 years on after partition, and Northern Ireland, uh, 100 years ago, and John would, would, would confirm this, Northern Ireland accounted for nearly 80% of gross domestic product in Ireland. Uh, and we were described uh, by David McWilliams as a beer and biscuit economy in the South. Mm. And yet we've transformed now 
uh, into uh, a world-class economy and, and ranked by the UN Human Development Index in terms of health, education and income as second in the world only to Norway. So we can see that having the manoeuvrability of independence has brought our economy and our society and our nation forward, uh, whereas Northern Ireland has clearly been held back by being part of the United Kingdom. So, you know, in a unification situation, obviously we would benefit collectively from the lack of having two systems on the one island, um, but there would be greater opportunities because in the negotiations that would take place around any reunification, the question would arise then, well, would Northern Ireland still have this bespoke arrangement with the UK? And that, again, is something that could be up for argument uh, and discussion, but it would give it a, a huge a competitive advantage within the European Union. Um, whether or not the European Union would allow that to continue is another issue. But like we've seen re- research reports uh, done by Canadian universities yes. about how good Northern Ireland would perform in a reunification situation. But a lot of that research was done before the pandemic and before the effects of Brexit has kicked in. We've seen Northern Ireland benefit from Brexit in some sectors. Um, but we need to keep looking at that research and that's why John's work is very important to keep giving the data to show what the reality would be in terms of a reunification situation. Yeah. If you're just joining us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to Senator Mark Daly and Professor John Doyle from DCU about the economic implications of a united Ireland. John, I want to just bring you in again here to pick up on a point that uh, Senator Daly made uh, a moment ago about the economic changes and the political realities. The Lots of research has been done already on this, Canadian papers, US papers. But at the end of the day, until the political landscape is right, you can't really start to make economic changes. But without planning for economic changes, you probably won't get any political movement. It'll always be about history and ideology and not about what the present society want. What do you think will be the driver to actually get momentum on this? Um, I think we have to start preparing. Mm. Um, I mean, the Republic of Ireland doesn't control when a referendum will be called. Under good credit agreement, that's exclusively in the responsibility of the British government. Um, traditionally, nationalists have assumed the British government would sort of try to wriggle out of that and be very reluctant to call a referendum. Uh, but the current Conservative Party could also call it a short notice for domestic political reasons, maybe to damage Scotland or to distract from a scandal in London. Um, and a referendum held without adequate preparation would be a disaster. Whatever way it ended up would be a disaster because people wouldn't have been brought into the headspace of thinking, you know, somebody's going to be on the losing side as well as the winning side at the end of it. So I think now is the time to prepare, even though nobody wants a referendum next year, but the preparations will take longer than 12 months, that's for sure. Mm. Um, so we do need to plan. We need, By the time a referendum is held, we do need to be able to tell people what will happen afterwards, what the best research tells us in terms of the likely consequences um, for health, for education, for people's pensions, the likely economic impacts. Uh, I mean, everyone, the last sort of two years I've been working on this project, all you have to say is only in one sense, we don't want another Brexit referendum. People understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. You know, that has become almost a catchphrase for how not to do it. And remember, even in Northern Ireland, where opinion is increasingly evenly balanced, uh, just an opinion poll this week in the Irish News suggests 52% of the population vote for United Ireland if it was held tomorrow. And given nobody in their right mind wants to hold it tomorrow. Um, you know, this shows how evenly balanced opinion is now. The middle ground, traditionally, were assumed to be small U unionists. You know, Alliance Party voters are often assumed to be, you know, disparaging term, polite unionists. 
But that doesn't reflect the Alliance Party under Naomi Long. They are genuinely mm. a broad church. There's people who have firm views for and against Irish unity, but probably 60% of the membership really do not have a firm view of how they will vote. And those voters in particular will want to know, well, what about the NHS? What about the economy? What do you think will happen to pensions? Um, because those are the issues rather than traditional national identity issues that will ultimately decide how they're going to vote. And that's going to be the people who will flip it one way or the other. It is, it is. And I just want to bring you in again here, Senator, because providing those conditions to have a proper debate about this and tease out the issues, a huge, huge part of the preparations. I know you're holding a series of uh, meetings in Shannon Aaron. What are you hoping to achieve by them and what exactly are they? Yeah, on the 7th of September, we'll be beginning our series of public consultations on the constitutional future of the island. And that includes listening to the views of the unionist community in terms of their views of Northern Ireland's future. And we've seen in polling by Lord Ashcroft that the majority of people in, in Northern Ireland, including in the unionist community, believe that there will be a referendum within 10 years. And as John has said, you know, what we need to do is not repeat the mistakes of the Brexit referendum. You don't hold a referendum without the long-term planning and engagement and consultation so that people know what they're voting for, what they're going to get, and what they're not going to get. So we're looking at the issues around the health service, education, housing, uh, income and the economy, the subvention, uh, and hopefully John will be part of that, will be a topic uh, for debate. We're going to listen to the voices of young people. So each of the three sessions will have a morning session where we'll be engaging with people from Froiga, the largest youth organisation on the island, uh, and talking to them about their vision for the future that they would like to see. Because in reality, the next 10 years, uh, of the decisions that we take and the ones we don't take will very much uh, decide the next 100 years. Mm. So we have to be very careful uh, in terms of the engagement that we do with everybody uh, and that any referendum uh, has to be take, take place uh, where people know what they're doing. And one of the key things, and this is going to come up in our discussions, is who's going to be allowed to vote in any future referendum. Uh, and that hasn't been decided. There was a court case in Belfast, which I attended, which was taken by unionists to try and get the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland to outline under what circumstances a referendum would take place. And there was a line in her affidavit where she said she did not see an election result as an accurate gauge of public opinion on this issue. And I can tell you as a politician, the only gauge of public opinion on any issue is an election. But we need to get clarification on that. We need to get clarification about who's going to be allowed to vote. Will 16 and 17-year-olds be allowed to vote like happened in Scotland but didn't happen in the Brexit referendum? And will EU citizens be allowed to vote? Again, it happened at the Scottish independence referendum but didn't happen in the Brexit referendum. So we need to get clarity around that because who is allowed to vote will decide the outcome. Yeah. Brexit might have one value at least. It's it's taught many people um, exactly how they shouldn't approach something. And I'm sure this is a topic that we're going to have to come back to on many occasions to tease out issues just like that. But for now, we're going to have to leave it there. That was Senator Mark Daly and Professor John Doyle. Thank you both very much for joining me today. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. If you'd like to get in contact with the show, you can email us at takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks to all of today's guests and to producer John Fardy with Jojo Cardoso on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof. And then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record and they'll be reviewing all of your Sunday newspapers. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.